I invite you to take your scriptures once again and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. As we take up once again in our study of this wonderful New Testament book, or Hebrews, excuse me, chapter 6, picking up in verse 4 this morning. And what we have before us here is perhaps one of the more difficult passages of Scripture uh, to exegete for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it deals with a fairly complex topic, which is that of falling away. Uh, Secondly, it it employs a few key words that are used nowhere else in the New Testament. Uh, And thirdly, it's not explicitly clear, at least on the surface, um, as to how the author is imploring uh, the warning that we find in this passage. And so we're going to explore all these difficulties, but but the first thing this all means is that we must approach this passage with a special humility. Now, we should always approach any portion of the Scriptures with humility, but that's all the more important today when we find a passage like this before us. It means we may not be able to satisfy ourselves as to the interpretation of every single detail of the text. However, I am confident that by God's grace, Uh, And in view of the wider context of the book, we can arrive at a sure, certain understanding of what this Spirit-inspired author intends for us to understand uh, this morning. And so with that, I invite you to look at Numbers, excuse me, Hebrews, not Numbers, Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 4 through 12. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And thus the reading of God's holy word. Let's now go to the Lord in prayer. Lord of our hearts, as much as we have read your word this morning and just now, so also we desire to be read by it. Uh, Please give us now a special measure of your grace as we sit before it to comprehend it both in our minds and in our spirits. And may your people be strengthened and your name glorified by what is proclaimed, the gospel of your Son. And may it be only Christ and his power alone that is preached and not the wisdom of man. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, since it's been a couple of weeks uh, since we last studied in the book of Hebrews, uh, the passage prior to this one before us, I want to take a few moments here at the start to refresh ourselves a little bit on what's happening. Uh, In chapter 5, the author began a a more thorough explanation of Christ's high priesthood uh, that was somewhat introduced back in the first chapter, or at least alluded to, and he came to start to uh, explain it more fully in chapter 5. What we saw there is that it replaces the Levitical priesthood. That's the priesthood you read about primarily in the Old Testament. Uh, We saw that it is eternal because it's sufficient meaning it accomplishes what it intends to accomplish. And we also saw that Christ carries out this priesthood on our behalf. Okay, Christ doesn't need a high priest. God doesn't need there to be a high priest. We need there to be a high priest. And so he took up that office on our behalf. And all of this is wonderful news. This is gospel goodness before us. It means that we can be sure of the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, we can have assurance. We don't need to look elsewhere. But the audience of Hebrews uh, had a bit of an issue, and that caused the author to take a pause in this exposition of the priesthood of Christ and kind of take up an aside, another warning, as it were. We saw that they had become, in the author's words, dull of hearing. Okay, there had formed something of a disconnect between what they professed to believe and what their actions said about what they believed. Okay, so their confession said one thing, but their manner of life was kind of saying another thing. At best, they had forgotten the reality of the blessedness of belonging to Christ. And at worst, they were in danger of abandoning Christ altogether. And part of what brought this about was the fact that they had reached a point of experiencing real challenges in their Christian walk. Okay, things like persecution, marginalization, loss of social standing, and so on and so forth. Right? They they were dealing with trials and tribulations. But in the midst of all of this, one of the things that they were also engaging in was basically the withdrawal from society. All right, we, we saw that implied where the author said, by this time, chapter 5, verse 12, you ought to be teachers. All right? We saw that that language is geared not towards the church gathered, but rather towards individuals in the church reaching out, right? teaching uh, all that Jesus commanded in accordance with the Great Commission. They were failing to do that. They were withdrawing to themselves. Now, it's a problem because it showed that there was, again, that disconnect between their profession, which professes the need of the gospel to go out to all the earth, and their action, which said, no, we're just going to keep to ourselves because of the difficulties that we are facing. Now, Christians sometimes make terrible mistakes. We know that, Um, even and especially in the worship of God. But what we also know is that God gives good gifts to his church. First, apostles. After their age, he continued to give pastors, elders, and teachers to teach and guard the flock, to build them up. And here, the author is one of those shepherds. 
All right, he is one who is an ordinary means of grace to God's people, calling this flock to turn away from their drifting and to lay hold of Christ, right? To pursue him in faithfulness. And the reality that's being emphasized in the midst of maybe some complicated and difficult concepts to understand, the central reality being emphasized is the sufficiency and efficiency of Christ's atoning work on the cross. That's central. It accomplished something. It affected something. And therefore, it changes things for those who come to share in Christ. And so for that reason, the conclusion is, there's not room for the regenerate to abandon Christ completely and expect that they may return to Him again. Now, as we're going to see, even though this is a strictly hypothetical proposition, we'll explain that, it still has great doctrinal value as a means of teaching and admonishing believers to hold fast to Christ in the full assurance of faith. And so I know that's, that's a lot there, but, but just keep those central realities in mind. That is, the cross accomplished something, it means something for us, and therefore we ought to persevere cross accomplish something, we ought to persevere. That's what is in view for us this morning. Now, the first three verses here, verses 4 through 6, they point us to the impossibility of a second new birth. Okay, the impossibility of a second new birth. Now, much of the controversy around this passage comes from these first three verses. There's widespread agreement among the Reformed, and even all the way back to the early church fathers, uh, that the elect cannot lose their salvation, okay? And that this passage actually supports that very point. Okay, so that, that's kind of our starting point. However, disagreement enters when we decide whether the primary subjects of this passage are the elect, in which case the warning is strictly hypothetical, or if the subjects of this passage are only potential false converts, in which case it's really possible. After all, a false convert truly could commit apostasy, as we're seeing described here. We're going to press into this, but again, the primary point, regardless of who is in view, is that there is no possibility of a second new birth. Now, Toward the end of who's being addressed here, we need to attempt to understand what kind of people we're talking about. So let's start with what is evident, okay? Whoever it is, the text says, it is impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. And here is where we're going to need to employ this principle, which is called the analogy of faith, or in Latin, the Reformers called it the analogia fide. But, but what it means is it's a, an approach to the Scriptures, which says that, okay, whatever passage we come to, we're going to interpret that passage in light of what the fullness of the Scriptures teach. Okay, We're not going to come to each passage and try to just pick it apart and just interpret what that one little passage means. The only way we can do that is by understanding what the fullness of the Scriptures has to say. Okay, so with that approach in mind, we know from the Scriptures there's two kinds of repentance. We talked about this a little bit this morning. In one sense, there is the repentance that belongs to initial salvation. All right, and that is a, a one-time repentance. 
It is what occurs when one comes from death into life. When that heart of stone is removed out of the person and a heart of flesh is given that responds to the Lord. That is the initial repentance um, that is in view there. A turning from sin to Christ. Now, the second kind of repentance is what we read about that the church is called to. And that is a daily repentance, which is, of course, part of sanctification that we engage in daily. Because as long as we still have sin in our lives, which we will until the Lord comes again or until we go to be with Him, then we're going to have sin. We're going to need repentance. Now, we know that that's a biblical fact, and that even the church experiences this because the Lord Himself in Revelation, when He, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> When he spoke to the seven churches in Revelation to the church in Ephesus, he said, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, he's writing to a church. Okay, The church had, had grown Weary, had grown complacent, and he's calling them to turn from that. But he believes, he's the Lord, he's writing to a true church. And so what that means then is that what must be in view in this passage is rather the first view. That is the initial salvation, that one-time repentance that accompanies the new birth. And this is supported in verses 1 and 6. You notice a, a correlation there in verse 1, which we didn't read today. But in verse 1, it says, Let us leave the elementary doctrine, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Then you go down to verse 6, it says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Okay, so this active repentance is in view. But what that's talking about is that which flows forth from regeneration. And so let's then examine a little bit of the description offered um, to the people in view. A lot hangs on that word once there in verse 4. In the Greek, that word is hapax, and it generally refers to a decisive event. That is a, a moment in time, such as where elsewhere the Scripture says that Jesus was once crucified. Same word, hapax. It's looking at a moment in time, or elsewhere where we're told that Paul was once stoned nearly to death. Uh, again, it's a momentary thing that occurs. Thank you, brother. All of this uh, points us to, to interpret this passage looking at that moment in time, or at least moves us in that direction. So let's then look at the things that are described. What is it that happened this once? Well, there's been enlightened. Well, throughout the, the Scriptures... That phrase or that sense of, of enlightening is used of regeneration. And in fact, even in secular literature of the time, that is the Greek philosophers and poets, they use the concept of enlightenment to speak of that spiritual experience where one moves into a greater knowledge. And so this is a real, true experience of illumination. But just think of the biblical basis that this have, has. Consider... Um, Isaiah writing that, you know, the true light has come into the world, right? And John adopting that same language, saying that the darkness flees from it. 
Think also of Paul's experience where, you know, he is uh, afflicted, you know, with blindness upon meeting Jesus. But then shortly thereafter, the scales fall from his eyes and he can see again. These are all illustrations of the enlightening that happens in the heart. Secondly, there is tasted the heavenly gift. Whenever the scriptures speak of tasting something, especially in a religious sense, the idea is of a real experience there. Think of when you taste food, you experience, right? It's, it's not just a thought. It's not just an idea, but it's rather a real experience. In this case, the, the heavenly gift is spirit-wrought regeneration. If we are to interpret this with the other places in the scriptures that speak of the promise and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which goes right in with the next statement, which says shared in the Holy Spirit. The sense of that word shared there is to be made a partaker, right? A, a participant in. That's something that, of course, the church shares in both personally and in our fellowship because it's the Spirit of Christ that dwells within all of us. And then again, we have that same word, tasted, which applies to the next couple of statements. Tasted the Word of God. Again, the sense of a real experience of that word, not simply an external hearing of it, but a real experience of that word. Also says that word tasted applying to the powers of the age to come. Now, that's an interesting phrase there, but the idea is that the church has received the Holy Spirit, which gives us a true experience of what is to come. Some call this the eschatological blessing, right? Because there is an end of all things. We've talked about that a lot. And the end of all things for the church, for the people of God, for the elect, is that they inherit the new heavens and the new earth along with Christ, brought to bear by the Holy Spirit. This is the blessing that awaits us. And so these are the powers of the age to come. The earth, or rather the church, has a true experience in sharing in that right now. Why? Because we have been given the Holy Spirit, who dwells in and with us. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 22. It says that God has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Spirit's a guarantee because he speaks and testifies to the things to come. Now, I've alluded to this fact, some would disagree with that interpretation for a number of reasons. But when you look at it as we just have, it doesn't seem tenable to hold that this is talking about only an external, non-salvific experience. When you look at the experience of being enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, and so forth, that seems like a real true experience of God. Now, two reasons that uh, also would lead us to that conclusion is that if that were not the case, if this passage is merely talking to um, potential false converts, meaning that all of these experiences are only ones that happen externally, they're just merely... Um, I guess you would say blessings that they experience simply by being around the church, sharing in the fellowship, attending 
worship, that sort of thing, then that would essentially make this passage irrelevant to the elect. For he's talking to potential false converts, not to elect persons who are secure. And secondly, if that were the case, such persons could not crucify again Christ, for they had never received his atoning work in the first place. The main point then is that this is written to the elect. Again, how do we know this? Well, in part, because in verse 9, he tells us he's writing to the elect. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure, we feel certain of better things. He believes he's writing to those who belong to Christ. But yet, he writes verses 4 through 8 to them. And so the main point must be to communicate that if, there's the hypothetical, if they were to fall away, there would be no possibility for their restoration. Why? Because the work of Christ is complete. Now going back to that analogy of faith, we're interpreting this in light of the rest of the scriptures. And the rest of the scriptures, even Hebrews itself, is abundantly clear that believers may have true assurance of their salvation. Why? Because Christ holds them in his hand, and he perseveres them to the end, and no one and no thing can remove them from his hand. Therefore, we can be sure in resting in Christ. As John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so this must be presenting us with a hypothetical rather than an actual possibility. Now that said, our confession does indicate, and I agree, as does John Calvin, that there is application in this passage to false converts. Right? The book of Hebrews later on in chapter 12 warns of uh, those who might become like Esau, who could not find repentance even when he sought it with tears. Right? So there is a possibility of application to those who are in the church but not of the church, you know, that have merely made a profession but have not truly been regenerate in their hearts. But nevertheless, the main emphasis is toward true believers. Again, not that they can actually lose their salvation, but that when exposed with the implications of their actions, that they would be moved by the Spirit to repent and follow Christ more faithfully. This goes right along with what we, what we say quite often, which is that God uses ordinary means in the preservation of his people. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 speaks of that when he told the disciples to go and make disciples. They were to baptize them and to teach them all that Jesus commanded. The teaching has a real significant place in the life of the Christian. Our shorter catechism, question 88, also speaks of outward means whereby Christ communicates the benefits of his redemption. Now it says that these are in particular, or especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, but it acknowledges that there are other means which Christ uses, things like the church, things like fellowship, things like pastoral leadership, all of these things are given by God to his people to guide them along. Why? Because we need guiding. We need to be helped through this life. Christ is the one who helps us. 
but most often he does it through the means that he has appointed. And this warning is a means toward that end. Again, not to strike fear in us that we should have no assurance or security in our salvation, but rather to confront us with the, the alternative. That if we should drift from Christ, here is the conclusion of what that looks like and what it means. And so as true believers then, let us examine the implications we're given here of what unfaithful living would be. It says here, it would be as crucifying again the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. Another way of looking at this would actually be the rejection of the assurance that we've spoken about, or at least the rejection of true assurance, which is found only in Christ. Now, where are we getting that? We'll go back to the fact that this congregation seems, the one, the audience of Hebrews, they seem to be shrinking back. Uh, they seem to be isolating themselves. And apparently from chapter 1, there was a temptation to return to the Jewish ways of worship. They were tempted to return to the old sacrifices, the old rituals, and, and all of that. Now, in our world, most would say, current setting, most would say, well, if that's how they want to worship, then what is it to you? But the reality is it doesn't matter what it is to us. The question is, what is it to God? For God is the one who commands us how we ought to be approached, how we ought to be worshipped. And the reality is that for all of the things that stayed the same from the Old to New Testaments, namely the covenant of grace, the one covenant, with two administrations, the promises to Abraham and to his offspring, which we inherit by virtue of Christ. For all that stayed the same, there was a significant change when Christ came. What was that change? It was that he fulfilled the law on our behalf. That's why he used the illustrations of things like no one puts old wine into new wineskins. Something new has come. And that's also why he said in Luke 9.62 that no one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Truly, coming to Christ involves a change, a new path, a new direction, and a break from the old things. And so the point is that to truly turn from Christ into other things, even seemingly religious things, is to deny the gospel itself. Why? Because it rejects the sufficiency of the cross, the present rule of Christ, the testimony of the scriptures, etc. Now that's not to say that the Old Testament sacrifices weren't sufficient for that time. They were. But Christ fulfilled them. And so to turn back from the fulfillment of those things is effectively to deny the fulfillment of those things. And that is the concern of this shepherd for the, his flock, that they would be denying the very confession that they make by turning to the old things. If they were to turn to the old things, that would mean they were looking to those old way of sacrificing as a means of their assurance and a means of their forgiveness instead of looking to Christ. So the action then, that he's calling for, that he's praying for, is that the Lord would fan a fire in their hearts that flees from the very thought of abandoning Christ. And he moves on then to give this illustration for them in verses 7 and 8. 
which we could call the test of fruit. And it provides us with something that serves to support and explain the point made in those first three verses. Jesus himself used a similar metaphor with the fig tree and also with the grapevine. James makes the same point in James chapter 2. And that point is that those who have received the blessing of salvation will produce fruit. The absence of good fruit exposes the fact that the blessing of salvation was never actually received, which means that all that awaits that person is a fearful judgment. Now, I want to temper that with reminding you of verse 9. The author is sure of better things in the case of his audience. The warning is to build them up, not to tear them down. The warning is to give them hope, not to take it from them. But to note of this illustration, we always have to be on guard of over-interpreting illustrations. Uh, when we over-interpret an illustration in the Bible, it generally means we allegorize it, which means instead of taking the general point that's being made, we start to assign meaning to every little detail, and every little detail must have a meaning, which means we've got to get pretty creative most of the time and just kind of pull something out of thin air. That's never a good idea. What we do with illustrations in the Scriptures is we look for the plain meaning based on the context. In this case, the, the plain meaning is simply to make the point that good things being experienced or even in some manner received, that's the rain and the provision that falls on the field, of course, corresponding to the grace of God, that means nothing if it's not received in such a way that it produces fruit in our lives. And to go along with the illustration, you can work up a field, make it look perfect, nice, level. You can fertilize it. You can water it perfectly. But if the bulk of what lies in the soil of that field is, is weed seed, then what's going to be produced are weeds, things which are undesirable, things which are, in the end, to be burned. And so again, the point is that what comes forth testifies to what was really there in the first place. And so he's saying to his audience, in effect, I know what is in you. And so just like John warned those whom he baptized to bear fruit in keeping with repentance in Matthew chapter 3, so also here the author of Hebrews is warning his congregation, but encouraging them at the same time, I know what lies within you. I believe the work of God within you, so go on and bear fruit. Press forward in faithfulness. Of course, the solution to this then is not to get lost in introspection, looking for some subjective assurance in ourselves that, you know, that, that we really do belong to Christ. The, the solution is to pursue Christ himself. And that means clinging to those ordinary means of grace we've talked about and utilizing them by faith toward the end that Christ designed them for, and that is love of God and love of neighbor. Now, another sort of accompanying point to this is to see that salvation brings a person into a, a personal relationship with the living God. Now, there's a caveat to that, because again, so often that's put forth as a very informal even sort of irreverent sort of relationship, you know. Uh, we see that in popular culture. But rather, what sort of relationship we're looking at here is the sort that Ezekiel speaks of. 
Ezekiel 36 and verse 26, God promised, he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He also says that he will make his spirit to dwell within his people. That is a relationship. And what comes forth from a person then as a result is the fruit that testifies. Or rather, if it is the absence of fruit, it betrays the absence of God's Spirit within them. But no matter, the illustration tells us quite clearly that this salvation, it is the work of God. Our works don't save us. Right? The works, the fruit, they are a result of God's saving work within us. And there's probably no better illustration of that in the Scriptures than the vine illustration that Jesus gave in John 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And every branch that abides in me bears good fruit. And of course, if you've ever seen a vineyard of grapes or some other type of plant, the fruit that comes forth, ultimately, where does it get its sustenance from? It gets it from the vine, receives it, and goes forth and bears fruit. Such it is with Christ and his people. Now, how unsettling this passage would be if the author showed us serious doubt about the calling of his audience. That would be cause for concern and lack of hope and a myriad of other uh, unpleasant emotions. But rather, we find great encouragement from the fact that he clearly believes himself to be addressing the people of God. And what that means is twofold. First, it means the preceding verses that we've just examined are really relevant to us as believers, to the elect of God. And secondly, it means that they are intended to drive us toward a greater assurance for our souls in Christ Jesus. So our final point this morning then is the relevance of all of this for the elect. Now verse 9, which we've mentioned a number of times already, to mention it again, he says, In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So what that means then is that even the most faithful Christian among us can benefit from the things that are written here in this passage. And notice the language of better things. Better than what? Well, better than apostasy and cursing, right? Rather than apostasy and the curse of God, things of blessing and salvation from God. But that begs the question again, and I want to make sure we're clear on this, because it's a valid question. Why then address this? If he's sure, if he's certain of better things in the case of this congregation, if he's sure that they're not going to actually commit apostasy, that the Lord holds them in his hand as the scriptures testify, then what's the need to even address this? Well, again, as an ordinary means of grace, the need to address it is to spur them along to progress. A way of application, if, if you have not as a Christian, to this point in your life, experienced a period of time in which you struggled to be diligent in the practice of your faith, then you most likely will. It is a, a part of the reality 
of sin remaining in our lives, though Christ has saved us. Sometimes worldly cares creep in and we need to be corrected. Sometimes it's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called a, a spiritual depression, which is quite a real thing. But we remember where James says in, in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, James knows, along with the other authors of the New Testament, and the Old Testament for that matter, that the devil has no power over the Christian. Right? He can't make you do anything. He cannot control you in any way. But that doesn't seek him from, from attempting to draw you away in whatever way that God allows. Maybe to test the sureness of your faith or whatever it may be. Certainly God allows a certain amount of suffering according to his will. Just go read the book of Job. But the devil has no power. and That's why James says, resist the devil. It's an action which we must take. We cannot simply just let ourselves drift and ebb and flow however the world takes us. No, we must be diligent to pursue Christ. Every Christian needs the care and motivation of the means of grace, and particularly the Word of God. That which has been proclaimed, that which has been delivered to you once and for all for the saints. Now note that in verse 10, the author himself acknowledges that this group of Christians has borne fruit. Okay? It says there, For God is not so unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do, as is true in the case of you here today. And so the encouragement, though, from that is not to doubt the goodness of God. Don't doubt his goodness. Don't doubt his persevering work in your life, but rather be motivated by it to be diligent in faithfulness. That's what he's calling them to do. Right? His goal, his desire for this flock is to have assurance of salvation and diligent, patient faith. But note again, and this is so important, here in these final couple of verses, that assurance does not come from works. Notice it says there, have full assurance so that you may not be sluggish. And herein we see the practical harm of shrinking back from Christian worship and returning to Jewish ways or looking to any other way of worship aside from which that which God has prescribed in the New Testament. It offers no assurance to us now. And I say now because formerly it did. That is the Old Testament system. For that time it did offer assurance. For that time it's what God had provided. And by participating in it, there was assurance for them to have by clinging to the promises of God. But as we said, now the promise has been fulfilled. To return to it now would be to deny the fulfillment of the promise. Now most of you know what it's like to be anxious. That feeling when you are uncertain about what is to come, about things you can't control, nor can you be sure about them. Though it's sinful, according to the New Testament, we often struggle with it. And part of the struggle is that lack of assurance. We want to know. 
right? We want to know what's going to happen. We want to be in control. We want to have that solace in our minds, and it affects our entire lives if we let it. Okay, and one of the things that can often happen is it makes us sluggish, right? The weight of dealing with that just makes us not want to deal with anything, and we just become complacent in where we are. We want to pull back rather than press forward. We want to avoid rather than approach what lies before us. And so you can see how this then relates to Christ. If we do not cling to him, then we have no ground for assurance. And that lack of assurance will lead to sluggishness in our walk. Conversely, whenever we rest upon Christ, we come into a freedom that propels us forward in faithfulness. We have that confidence, we have that hope, and we have that within us which spurs us along to be faithful, to persevere through the difficult times, and to cling to Him because we know who has gone before us. Remember that Christ went before us, first and foremost as our great Redeemer, but also as our example. Consider His temptation in Matthew chapter 4, during those 40 days in the wilderness, despite suffering, Despite temptation from Satan, he didn't break away from the assurance of the goodness of God's plan. He didn't say, I'll just take what Satan has to offer. He said, no, I believe the goodness of what my Father has promised. And obviously, how much greater then was the cross? Yet he prayed, not my will, but your will, O Father, be done. The point is, faith and patience, as we read here, inherits the promises. And so we are to cling then to Christ, the one who has secured those promises for us. Now in light of all of that, here's the conclusion. I think it's summed up well by Romans 8.32, where Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now there's a terrible quote that circulates on social media from time to time that goes like this. It says, why not follow Jesus? If I do and find out that I was wrong, I've lost nothing. If I don't and find out I was wrong, I've lost everything. That's a terrible quote because it completely misses what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures tell us to seek assurance. And they do so because assurance is there. There's no such thing as a Christian walk which says, yeah, maybe Jesus exists, I'll just try it. The only such thing that exists is a Christian walk which says, I believe that Jesus is Savior and Lord, and that He has saved my soul eternally. And the assurance is that He died on the cross for sinners. God raised Him three days later from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. That's the assurance everyone who looks to Jesus Christ and rests in Him by faith has. Because God gives to Him eternal, not temporary, not possible or probable, but eternal life. And so the encouragement this morning is to wait upon the Lord with confident, patient hope and do not grow weary in doing good. For those who persevere will beyond a shadow of a doubt inherit all the good promises of God that He has made to us in Christ Jesus our Savior. They are ours. And so let us pursue Him with diligence according to the Word of God and by His power. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank You for meeting us here today and for bringing us into Your presence and Spirit and truth. 
Now we pray for the one who is weary uh, and struggling with the challenges of this narrow path. Grant them to overcome by your Spirit's power and the testimony of the Word and the faithfulness of our Savior. And we pray for those who are already walking in patience, that you sustain them in that way. And for all of us, Lord, grant us to behold Christ day after day, that we may walk in the full assurance of our hope and patience toward the fullness of your promises that are ours in Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.